0: God, I pray that You would be with us this morning, that You would uh, help us to see You more clearly through Your Word, through what Michael has to say. I pray that You would just draw us close this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Seated. And while you are doing so, if you will turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We will begin chapter 3, verse 1, and look through those first six verses this morning. As we have been uh, spending time in the book of 1 Peter off and on since the beginning of the year. And so, remind you once again of what Peter's message is. He is writing to teach them based on what God has done, how to live where they don't belong when they are facing difficulties. And the whole book really is is contained in one form or fashion um, in that statement people he's writing to are are not where they belong, as we've talked about before, very possibly um, people who have been forced colonizers out of Rome, maybe Jews and Gentiles, um, find themselves in Asia Minor in a, a culture they don't feel is their own, in a place where they are at the very least uncomfortable and at the most persecuted um, for their faith. And so, because of that, he says, okay, you are where you are so how do you deal with that and he is giving them instructions on how to do that and so I want to read I want to go back this morning because we have been looking at small sections we looked at 11 and 12 at one time we looked at then 13 through 17 then we looked at 18 through 25 this morning we'll look at 1 through 6 in chapter 3 then next week we'll look at verse 7 but all of those are contained in a section that we started way back uh, on May 11th Uh, beginning in verse 11. So I want to start over there and read from 11 through the end of 7 this morning. So uh, chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 3, verse 7, as we look at this this morning. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct excellent, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, an overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would use it to speak into our hearts, you'd open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to appreciate the truth that is there, but ultimately, God, we ask that you would change our wills. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The very beginning of that section, he says two things that you need to do in the culture that you're in when things aren't going your way. He said back in verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And then this whole next section, all of the rest of chapter 2 and halfway through chapter 3, is specific examples of what that looks like. And very specifically, he talks about four groups of people, citizens servants, wives, and husbands, and he arranges those, and in smack dab in the middle, two before and two after, he gives the example of Jesus. And those are the the verses up there. And if you'll notice, the two that are closest to Christ are the two that are, or that have the least rights in that society. Servants and wives. The ones that probably need the most encouragement, he sandwiches closest to the example of what Christ did. And so whenever we read this, what we really should do is read each of those, that passage about citizens, the passage about slaves, the passage about wives, the passage about husbands, we should read each one of those in light of verses 21 through 25. It's almost as if really what you should do is read 13 through 17 and then read 21 through 25. Read 18 through 20 and then read 21 through 25 again. Read 3, 1 through 6 and then read 21 through 25. Read verse 7 and then read verses 21 through 25. That's the key to unlock that because Peter is not calling anyone to do what Christ has not already done. When we buck up against the system and what Peter says is our responsibilities and our our task in difficult circumstances, he's not calling us to do something that Jesus didn't already do. We have the perfect example of how we are supposed to behave, of how we are supposed to act, of how we are supposed to respond to injustice and unkindness and being the low end of the totem pole in our culture. And so this morning, we're going to look specifically at verses 1 through 6 and Peter's admonition to wives. And what he does is, it's basically the same strategy that he has used all along. The issue is in here, it's not out there. The issue is, how do I control what goes on in here, not how do I control what goes on out there, which really I really have so little control over to begin with, whether that's the government or whether that's my master, or whether that's my husband, or whether that's my wife. I can't control those things ultimately. I can control what goes on in here. And so, Peter, what he does is he introduces some very countercultural and very subversive ideas while at the same time calling people to live in the culture. We looked at that a few weeks ago when we were last time we were here. We talked about slaves, and there were three things he did. That were very countercultural. Number one, he addresses slaves as though he has the authority to do that. Peter's not their master. He doesn't have the authority to do that, and yet he addresses them as though he really is their master, which is saying the Christian ethic trumps any cultural ethic. The commands of, of Scripture trump any ideas that the culture may place on an individual. Second, he assumed that slaves could be treated unjustly, which was unheard of in that time. A slave couldn't say, you're treating me unfairly. That's, that's not a category they thought of. You're a slave. I can treat you however I want to. Many were treated very well in that culture. But to think, to have that idea of you're being treated unjustly is not thought of. And so Peter subverts the culture by recognizing that yes, even slaves can be treated unjustly. And third, he seeks to change social structures by changing the heart, not through rebellion. And so we see some similar ideas that go on with wives. Number one, he addresses wives. He has no authority to do that. That's the husband's job. And again, the Christian ethic. The call of Christ trumps any cultural ethic or cultural norm or call of our society. Number two, he calls wives to live in the social order of their day. You might think, If he really is for all people and equality of all people, if that's what God believes, that all people are created equal, wouldn't he seek to overthrow some unjust situations? No, he he really, we'll read in a second, he calls wives to live in the social structure of the day, just like he calls slaves to do, because the issue is not, again, what's out there, it's what's in here. We find that hard to swallow in our culture that says, I have rights and I have freedoms. We don't like that. Number three, he implies that women can make spiritual decisions apart from their husbands. Again, extremely countercultural. Wives did what their husbands did. If, if, if a man changed religion, the family would change religion. Whatever the husband said, that's what the family would do. There's an implication here, and we'll get to it in a second, that wives can and should make spiritual decisions on their own. That's shocking to his readers. And then finally, we break the status quo. We we change culture, again, not through external means, but through godly influence, through a godly character. That's how that happens. And so this, this whole thing of... In one way, you could read this and and someone in the culture would say, yeah, Peter's calling people to do what the culture says, but at the same time, he's very subversive. He's very countercultural. He wants things to change. And he wants them to change in light of the gospel. And so what does he do? Verse 1. Likewise, in the same way, some versions say, so we go back in the same way, what? Well, as from the very beginning. As we honor everyone, as we submit ourselves to things, but also in the same way that Christ did. All of that's wrapped up in that word. Everything that we've talked about so far, far, in the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. And again, we don't like that. Our culture doesn't like that. Let me give you a a general view of what submission is, first of all. Because we need to, I've said it before, but we reiterate this. And If we don't understand this point, then none of this makes sense. Christianity is more concerned with changing your heart than it is changing your external circumstances. And if we don't believe that, the gospel really won't make sense to us. Christianity is more concerned, God is more concerned with changing your heart than changing your external circumstances. And we don't like that. I'd rather you change to make me happy than me change to be joyful in the midst of my circumstances, as Brandon talked about two weeks ago. Right? Sometimes we struggle with joy because our focus is somewhere besides our Creator and our Redeemer. And so I want my circumstances to change so that I can be happy. And God says, no, I want you to be happy despite your circumstances. And the only way that's going to happen is if you're happy in me, if you're satisfied in me. That's, if we don't get that general idea of what submission really is, then we miss the rest of it. So very specifically for wives, we talked about this about a year ago. We talked about husbands and wives in, in detail in the family Um, maybe a year ago or so, a definition of submission when it comes to women. Submitting to your husband is loving or maybe delighting in and encouraging the leadership that your husband provides. Submission is loving or delighting in and encouraging the leadership that your husband provides. That's submission. And Peter says, that's what you need to do. And then we say, but why? And the good thing is Peter tells us why. For their context, and then we'll apply that generally to the rest of us. Why? Verse 1. So they may be won without a word. Well, maybe won to what? What are we winning them to? Um, It says, so that even if some do not obey the word... That word, do not obey, is, is one word in Greek. occurs about 14 times in the New Testament. Uh, in every instance, but maybe in Romans 10, it refers to non-believers. Now, it can, in other Christian literature, it refers to maybe people who are just being disobedient, who are believers but just ignoring part of God's counsel for a time. But in every instance that Peter uses it, four times in 1 Peter and and all the rest, again, except maybe Romans 10, it refers to non-believers. Most people think that what Peter's talking about here is that you've got a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, and he's trying to get her to figure out, how do you live in this situation? How do you deal with that? Because what we really want to do is, the wife wants their husband to become a believer, so how do you do that? Well, I preach the gospel to him every day, Right? stick stick verses under his pillow and you nag and you nag and you nag and Peter says well there's maybe there's a a different way but what we're trying to do is the reason we submit Peter says is because you need to win your husband now a lot of us in here may think well my husband's a believer so maybe this passage doesn't apply to me at all Um, but the principles are still the same because well I don't know husbands how many of you are perfect one. One perfect husband. And, and one, not a husband, but one single guy who's perfect. <laughs> That's why he's perfect, because he's single, right? right? You know as well as I do, and, and my wife can tell you, and so can I, that there are times when I disobey God's Word. There are times when I'm not following along with what God would have me to do. And you know the same is true for you. There are times, guys, believe it or not, when your wife wishes you were more spiritual than you are. There are times, guys, that your wife wishes that you were more obedient than you are. That you exhibited some fruit of the Spirit to a greater degree than you currently do. And so the question, ladies, is, how do I get him to change? (laughs) But remember... God is more concerned with our heart than our external circumstances. Now, I think Peter talks about how women are supposed to influence their husbands, but the goal is what's going on in here, not what's going on out there. So the why, it's to win their husbands. Because usually the wife followed the husband's religion. And now we find ourselves with a lady who's a believer, more than likely her husband's not a believer, so what do you do? Do you go back to worshiping the pagan gods? Or is there a way that you can have influence, a way that you can change? <clears throat> and so, he says there's a way we can change. And how? He says specifically how? By your behavior and by your manner. By your behavior and by your manner. First of all, your behavior. It says, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. So First of all, ladies, do you respect your husband? Do you show respect to your husband in public and in private? When you're talking about your husband to other people, uh, would they ever even, would it cross their mind to think less of your husband by the words that you use in public? Maybe that's joking, maybe that's being silly, maybe that's telling a story of when he was an idiot at some point in time. But would anybody ever imagine thinking less of their husband thinking less of your husband ladies by the things that you say in public and then in private do you encourage him or do you run him down do you tear him down or do you build him up do you speak truth or is it is it truth in love or is it truth in nagging or a harsh tone or unkind words Does your husband know without a shadow of a doubt that you respect him? And that's a difficult thing to do at times. Because sometimes we husbands are not worthy of respect. And God would say, and Peter would say, that's immaterial. Remember, what is more important is what's going on in here, not what's going on out there. Your husband very often might be unworthy of respect. And Peter says, that's not the point here. The point is the way you behave as a Christian, as a woman. But also, not only respectful, but purity. And here is where a woman in one sense is is let off the hook. Our behavior, our submission should never lead us to do something that's ungodly, either in behavior or words or actions. Your life, is you are called to be Pure in your actions, in your words. So submission never entails getting yourself in a situation where you would be suspected of or accused of or find yourself even between you and God being impure. It's not what submission means or what God is calling us to. So our our behavior, is it respectful and is it pure? That has an impact on people, whether we believe it or not. And then, second, Peter addresses our our manner. Um, he says, "But let your adorning." And then he, I'm sorry, verse three, "Do not let your adorning." He talks about adorning the way we carry ourselves, our manner. And he says, "Don't let it be external stuff, our adorning, but let it be internal stuff." Again, some cultural context we need. A woman in that culture was never to be outside dressed up or with hair fixed or with jewelry on apart from her husband. If you're a woman and you were alone and you were dolled up, so to speak, then you had a certain reputation. So now there's these Christian women and maybe they are going to a church meeting without their husband because he's not going and he says, Do you use your freedom in Christ, which you have, in a way that would bring dishonor to you or to your husband, in one sense. And we think, well, that's not an issue here. I mean, my wife goes to the store without me all the time and, you know, wears earrings and fixes her hair. And no one ever thinks anything unkind of her. And so we've got to think in terms of what does it look like in our culture. So, ladies, when you are without your husband... In one sense, the idea is, is they're trying to draw attention to themselves. They're trying to influence those around them. They're trying to get people to look at them. So the question is, ladies, when you're without your husband, are you trying to draw attention to yourself in a way that would either bring you dishonor or your husband dishonor? The extreme example, you take your wedding ring off, you go to the bar, you wear a low-cut blouse, right? What's the purpose of that? You want guys to notice you, right? That's the purpose of bringing dishonor to you and to your husband. That's the extreme of that, but, you know, I don't know all of your situations, but what does it look like when you're in public without your husband? Would someone ever think less of you or your family? And that's what Peter is calling wives to do, is to think about their behavior. But there's also something else going on, because women from the beginning of time have used their good looks and charming personality to to influence those around them. Women are good at that. Right? If I look a certain way or I act a certain way, I can get a guy to do what I want him to do. Ladies, do you own up to that? Is that true? I've talked to enough. I think that's true. And I've known enough guys who've followed blindly because of the way someone looked. Right? And Peter says, that's not how you influence, Right? You can influence that way. You might even be able to get your non-believing husband to come to church with you by the way you look. But that won't change his heart. And you'll keep having to do that and maybe keep having to up the ante. Right? External things people are interested in, but it doesn't change the heart. We know that from the Old Testament. Right? Samuel shows up to Jesse's house and... God tells him you're going to anoint a king, and so the tall, rugged, handsome, older boys come by, and this must be the one. No, that's not the one. Well, this must be the one. No, that's not the one. And God tells him man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so the, the outward influence that you have, ladies, may, may affect your husband briefly, but it's not won't make a heart change with him. Instead... He says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. And then here's the key, which in God's sight is very precious. You see, your goal is, is, is ultimately not to be precious to your husband, your goal ultimately is to be, to be precious to God. A spirit that's gentle. It's quiet, that that looks to God as the one who meets ultimately all of your needs. That's the example that ultimately changes hearts, even though it may be slow and painful, and you may not see it. Again, it's what Jesus did. He could have come off the cross and railed against the religious leaders, but you know as well as I do, when he when he spoke woes against them, did it change their hearts? Now, He spoke truth, and He needed to be spoken because He was God and He could do that. But did it change their hearts? No. They still put Him on a cross. But Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. And the key is, but He continued entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly. And notice in the example that he gives at the end of this section, that's exactly what Peter calls wives to do. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Abraham is often used in Scripture held up as the father of those of faith and so now Peter is doing a play on that and Sarah is the father of the women who do what they're supposed to do. You think what Abraham called Sarah to do was frightening? Hey dear, we're leaving. Where are we going? I don't have a clue. <laughs> you don't think she was scared? Hey dear, we're going down to Egypt. There's not any food. Okay. Okay. Hey dear, tell them you're my sister. Because I'm afraid they're going to take my life. They may kidnap you and do bad things to you, but will you tell them that? You don't think that was frightening? We don't we don't get her reaction. <laughs> unfortunately, to a lot of that a lot of that. Guys, let me talk to you for a moment. It is a frightening thing to give someone authority over you who's not perfect. Guys, how many of you are perfectly just in everything that you do? What about perfectly loving? What about consistent in the way you behave? How many of you every single time give up your preferences for the good of your wife? And Peter is calling your wives to submit to you. How many of you would want to submit to yourself? You need to understand, we'll talk about this more next week, you need to understand what God is calling your wives to do. And you need to make it easy on her. It's a scary thing to give someone authority over you. If we talk about maybe a final definition of of submission, it's purposely giving someone authority who at times may not have your best interest at heart. At the very least, they don't have your best interest at heart. At, At the most, they may be out to do you harm. And over and over and over again, we are called in various aspects of society to submit to something or another. And guys, God is calling wives to submit to you when you, at the very least, do not have her best interest at heart all the time because you're a human being. And because at times you will do things that are selfish. And God calls her to do that, it says, without fear. Why? Why? Because ultimately, God takes care of us in eternity. Right? Well, we sang a little while ago that our hope was in God. Peter calls us in, in chapter 1, set your hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed in the day of Jesus Christ. Life is scary. Submission is scary. And if our hope is not completely on God, then we will miss and we will live in fear And Peter says, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He's not denying that the situation that he's calling them to may very well be frightening. Not just uncomfortable, not just, oh, I don't really want to do that, but literally frightening. If I submit to you, I'm not sure what that's going to look like. He gets that. He understands that. The same way He understands that slaves submitting to masters may be frightening. The same way He understands that citizens submitting to government may be frightening. He gets that. And He calls us to that while at the same time calling us to entrust ourselves to God. Ladies, do you want your husband to change? Do you want him to be more godly? Do you want him to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit more often? then do what Jesus did. Show Him Christ on the cross. That's our call. It's an impossible call. But that's what He's calling wives to do. For the good of their husband. For the good of the family. Ultimately for the good of the church. Show Him Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth that is in it even though it is difficult and hard. And I pray that you would, through the power of your Spirit, strengthen us to do what you've called us to do, both wives and husbands. God, I pray specifically for the men in this room this morning and those that aren't with us, God, that you would help us to understand what you have called our wives to do, that you would strengthen us through the power of your Spirit to be loving and sacrificial and kind. And that we would look at the task that you have given us to do with fear and trembling and trust that you have gone before us. Gotta pray for the wives in this room that you would encourage them, that you would bless them as they have been a blessing to us, as they have cared for our children, as they have loved and prayed for us as they have kept us out of lots of trouble, I am sure. God, I pray that you would encourage them, you would bless them, that you would strengthen them to continue the task that you have called them to do, to be wives and mothers and friends and encouragers and sisters in Christ. And God, may all of us as the body of Christ honor you in the things we say and do. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Would you stand with us as we sing one more time, please?